Welcome to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Welcome back. I'm Father Matt Malone, Editor-in-Chief of America Magazine. I'm joined by Patty Gilger and Ashley McKinless from our editorial staff. And we are talking with uh, Ross Douthat, who is a columnist for The New York Times and the author of the book To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. Uh, You can find uh, an interview that uh, America conducted uh, with Ross at americamagazine.org forward slash serious, where you can also find links to all of the articles that we are talking about today. Mr. Douthat, thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Nice to Uh, chat with you again. I held back on many tweets. (laughs) <laughs> while listening yeah so i mean discussion yeah so you i mean you know something about this like what the the you know what the how twitter can be used for good and not so good and I, what are your thoughts about that uh, mostly that it's used for for i mean i think we can say evil not so good is so it's so weak key right <laughs> um, I, I think that you know i i tell myself since i'm I use Twitter and I don't use Facebook. That Twitter is in some sense morally superior to Facebook, but that's probably just an exercise in self-deception. Probably, <laughs> it's been, yeah. Been been harder and harder to sustain over the last few years. Um, but no, I mean, I, I think you know the nature of social media. I think we have a fair amount of evidence on this front now, um, both sort of pseudoscientific, but also just the evidence of obvious everyday experience is that it's a sort of a deranging, it's a deranging influence. Um, it sort of encourages tribalism and denunciation, um, and you know, and so on down the list of topics that you guys were already discussing. And I mean, I think it can, like a lot of technology, that it can be used for good mm-hmm. if you manifest sort of impressive self-control and act infused with the grace of the Holy Spirit at all times. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, this 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 is true. And there, there are times, I think, sort of early Twitter, which I wasn't around for, had more of a sort of healthy quirkiness to it. You were sort of stumbling on ideas and arguments you wouldn't have encountered and sort of engaging in interesting sort of, you know, semi-public conversation. I think the best thing about Twitter is that you know, you can sort of get in a kind of back and forth with a smart person you might not otherwise engage with. It's sort of other people are watching and chipping into and sort of encouraging. And, and that, you know, that, that can absolutely happen. If you have the right level of discipline, it can happen a lot. But most of the time, uh, the nature of the medium sort of takes control of how you experience it. I think that that's true. I mean, it, it, it does. And what, what seems to me uh, is that the, the the way in which this used to happen, you know, if, you, if you, you, you'd read something in a magazine, then you'd sit down and you might actually handwrite or type out a letter, and then you would have to that's right. go to sleep and wake up the next morning, and you'd reread <laughs> it, and you'd put it in the envelope, and then you'd send it. That seemed a more appropriate form of public communication for a fallen world That's than, right. <laughs> than yeah. having the option yeah. of immediately yeah. letting thousands of people know what you think about something. Yeah. Um, you know, should should people who are sinners and live in a fallen world have that kind of power, that yeah. kind of immediate I think part of what this is is it does two things for us. One, it succ- helps us succumb or encourages us to succumb to this like glorification of speed. 
And I'm really suspicious of that at times. I'm really suspicious. But Ross, one of the things I wanted to ask you, just out of this last line of commentary that you were making, which I found really provocative, is that um, you said a couple of times, you know, if we are, um, you know, fully immersed in the grace of the Holy Spirit, or if we have the proper kinds of discipline, these kinds of things are possible. Totally agree. Totally agreed. One of the things that keeps occurring to me in my own efforts to use these kinds of media is the way that um, they can only be used used well if I am more individually and personally disciplined. And so one of the things it seems to do is to put more and more emphasis on individuation. Like it, it, it by its nature of trying to use it well, ruptures us out of community. Mm-hmm. Am I making any sense there? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I can sort of see that, although I think that there's a way in which, you know, there, there's a way in which the more you're embedded in a community, the more you are likely to have certain kinds of self-control and some mm. sort of self-limiting effects. Awesome. I mean, just to sort of pick examples from my own life, you know, I have three small children, so that's the community <laughs> that I'm <laughs> the most embedded in, sort of like a, you know, a journalist embedded with a military unit. It's beautiful. Um, you know, and, and I mean, to, to the extent that, basically, to the extent that that community pulls me away from my iPhone or sort of, but, or also sort of pushes me towards, you know, having these sort of particular moments where you maybe are on Twitter, right? Like I write most of my tweets as a form of procrastination when I'm column writing, (laughs) um, which is not itself ideal, but which I think is better than a sort of 24 seven, you see something, you know, you, you immediately respond to it and so on. It gives you time to sort of think, well, which, you know, which of these 17,000 things that outraged me should I actually tweet about here and now? So to the extent that I ever succeed in discipline, in sort of self-discipline, it does, it does owe something to, you know, the furious demands (laughs) of my family (laughs) and the limits that those, that those place. But I think, you know, the, the point that I'm doing it while I'm doing my official work is one of the particular problems for those of us who do this kind of thing for for a living right which is that you know you you can be a newspaper columnist or a magazine editor you know or whatever whatever vocation god has inflicted upon you <laughs> in, this, in this world and not use any social media but it's pretty hard and it, yeah. there is some you know there's there, like for instance literally as we speak um i wrote a column today uh, that talked about the, the, it had the provocative title The Redistribution of Sex and it talked a lot about provocative subjects like sex robots and online toxic misogynists and so on um, and in this moment I'm being furiously attacked on Twitter, like even as we speak well I can't see it right now because I'm talking to you but, <laughs> but I could see it ten minutes ago right. and you know you could probably just assume you know, that you were anyway without saying you could, it. <laughs> you could assume but it, it varies from week to week but, right. but you need but you do need to know as a columnist like you you need to strike a balance between sort of not letting those serious attacks sort of dominate your psychic space and lash out at them in return and so on but you also need to be aware that they're out there because that is in fact for better or for worse sort of where the conversation is right now and so you would be sort of derelict in your duty to be to be a public arguer if you weren't sort of somewhat apprised of the place where people are literally arguing with you so it's a there there isn't some there's a perfect escape 
you know, I, I think if you did certain kinds of academic work, I mean, there, there are sort of intellectual projects that you can undertake and wall yourself off from this completely. But it is a lot harder for me to see how, you know, the editor of America magazine or an office <laughs> columnist for the Times, you know, anyone who's sort of trying to trying to be a professional in this world can sort of simply put it to one side. You have to actually be find a way to be engaged without um, letting it corrupt you. Now you know who you know who would take issue with both of us on that is R.R. Uh, R. Reno, the editor of First Things. He he pops up on Twitter, I think, about once every fortnight, at <laughs> most, <laughs> just to say that his That's that true. his latest column is out. And uh, he would say, "No, I don't have to be there. I don't have to be there. I, I get to say what I say in every issue of First Things, and you know, y- y'all can do with that whatever you like." Um, and I I kind of respect that. I'm 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 little envious of it. I also think it's probably not something that I could do because I think that you're more right than wrong on that one, Ross. Well, I think, I mean, I think Rusty has a point insofar as like, you know, his particular job is in a sense to publish a magazine that is counter-programming. And, and, and yeah, and America is closer to that idea too than the Times. Um, The the problem is the Times isn't the counter-programming to the to the everyday news, it's trying no, to be. It is the, the programming. Best, yeah. The best. Well, it's trying to be the best version of that programming. Right. Um, and so it's just it's harder. It's you know it's harder to step back and so on. But but even I would say even someone like Rusty, um, even someone like yourselves, some ones like yourselves, the the, um, you know, if you want to understand, like we're, you know, if you want to understand where debates are, you have to be at least aware of yeah. how they're happening on Twitter. Like in the case, you know, in the case of Catholicism, the Francis Pontificate debates right. about debates about the Church, you know, there's a horrible, there, there's a way in which you can be trapped on Catholic Twitter, for instance, and come to imagine that this is the entire Catholic world, and that's an insane and terrible thing to do. Um, but a lot of you know, actual interactions and conversations have migrated to Catholic Twitter. And I I think I would not, for instance, have a clear understanding of, like, where sort of would-be intellectual Catholics who are younger than me are right now. And they're they're in a very strange and interesting place if I didn't follow them on Twitter and watch them, you know, flame each other over (laughs) their encyclicals, right? You, you You have to have some... So even even Rusty and I, you know, I mean, he's obviously aware of this. But even even first things when it sort of, you know, some of the like the, the controversy at first things over the Mortara case, the, the review they published on the uh, kidnapping of the Jewish boy in in Rome in the 19th century that occasioned all this controversy, that was clearly connected to arguments and conversations going on on Twitter even before it was in turn magnified by it. Now, Ross. Um to change the church. That's not usually a title that you see in uh, the conservative Catholic section of the of the bookstore. So um, if you could um, unpack that for our our listeners, what, what, what is this book about? I, well, it's a book about the pontificate of Francis, um, and it's in part just an attempt to sort of tell a story of what I think is the most are the most interesting and important features of those of this pontificate. Um, and what I think is most interesting is sort of implied or contained in that title. Um, I think that it's, you know, that the sort of the 
kind of simplistic secular media narrative of the Francis era, you know, that he's a liberal pope who wants to change the Church in various ways that conservatives are resisting, um, is, in fact, for all its limitations, the most useful way to understand uh, the stakes of the Francis era. Um, and and that, in turn, you know, leads to sort of, I think, a, a a certain kind of focus on what I think is really interesting about um, sort of the internal battles in the Vatican and in the various synods on the family and also occasionally online and on Twitter uh, and so on, that, you know, there, there, is, there are, in fact, pretty high theological stakes here and a lot of really interesting questions about how the Church can change and um, what that's likely to mean. And then there's, I do a certain amount of speculation about where the Francis era could be going and sort of how it will look from the vantage point of 50 years from now, depending on, or 500 years from now, for that matter, depending on um, sort of who wins and who loses. And I do think there'll be winners and losers from these debates. Uh, and then finally, because I am some sort of conservative Catholic, as confused as I think conservative Catholicism is about itself right now, there's also a certain amount of critique and a certain amount of argument about why um, I think the Pope is, um, to sort of put it crudely, wrong in some of the changes that he's pushing for and why they have the potential to destabilize what I think are essential parts of Catholic teaching. Um, How's that for the? That's, part of that's the pretty capital, good. That's pretty impressive. It's summary. almost as if you've done this before. <laughs> no, this is the first interview I've given. You. You're getting this. You're getting me. You know, totally cold. This is a, so. this is an America exclusive. <laughs> so, Russ, in this uh, in these conversations that um, you're trying to open up in a deeper way about the future of the church or the shape of the pontificate under Francis, one of the things that really does strike me is the role of authority in kind of the modern or postmodern world. However, we want, might want to talk to you know track that. And uh, I bring that up because I think that you know you mention in the article or you're able to mention in the interview that you gave with America Magazine about. Um, the differences and the similarities between Francis, Benedict, and John Paul II, and you know, you you note, I think, really accurately and provocatively that Francis and John Paul are actually much more similar than we might think in terms of their public persona um, and their charisma, those kinds of things. But one of the key differences that maybe you didn't have a chance to mention or maybe you disagree with is the shape of the kind of authority that they tend to want to practice. Um, and it seems to me that that may strike right to the heart of one of the things that you're um, reading through this idea about what uh, the the aims or objectives that Francis has and his um, whether he has a real goal to change the church because in my stance what I would say is that I'm not sure that Francis really has a goal uh, a set of objectives that he's actually after to change other than this I think he's after uh, the desire to change us as individuals in our relationship with Christ in a corporate body and I think it's that desire that really leads him in everything that he does. I don't want to dismiss that John Paul II, of course, didn't have that or anything like this. But that means then that he doesn't have a political agenda that he's trying to move through to restructure the shape of the institution. What he's trying, the institution he's trying to restructure is our hearts. Uh, I think in an, in an odd way that doesn't give Francis enough credit. Hmm. Um, I, I don't disagree with that description. Uh, I'm not... I'm very much of the view that, you know, Francis is, in, in, you know, an incredibly serious, far more serious than I, Catholic Christian, that he, that he has the objectives you describe, and that he would describe a lot of his efforts as aiming in that direction. Yeah. Um, 
but at the same time, I mean, I, I also think that it's not just a sort of ad hoc, you know, let's try this and open up this conversation and have this discussion and so on. I, I think Francis from the beginning has seen, you know, he has a set of sort of concrete areas, um, some of them very sort of expansions of the arguments that were made by John Paul II and Benedict. I'm thinking in particular around economic and ecological issues. That what Francis has basically done is added urgency and pungency to the you know the sort of commonplace papal critiques of unbridled capitalism and technocratic culture and so on. Um, so that's I think part of part of the story. Um, and then another part of the story is, I mean, I think Francis very clearly, with, without necessarily being a sort of full-scale liberalizer in the mold of, let's say, certain people who would get published in the National Catholic Reporter or something, <laughs> he believes that the Church needs sort of the liberal faction in certain debates to win some victories and have room to conduct large-scale experiments um, in ways that both of the prior popes in different ways because they were different figures um, thought was either unwise or impossible. And in, and and this explains, I think, sort of the persistence with which he has pursued particular objectives, right? I mean, the, the objective of opening some form of communion for remarried Catholics who haven't received an annulment has been a through line for his pontificate going back, though people often forget because it was crowded out by other things, to that very first press conference on the plane back from Latin America, where he talked favorably about the Eastern Orthodox approach to these questions and praised Walter Casper and so on. Um, and, you know, and then more generally, the appointments he's made, um, including in the United States, the figures he's elevated, the approaches he's blessed and so on, have not always and everywhere, but have tended to have this more general you know, you could call it a liberalization, you could call it a kind of truce with aspects of late modern personal and social culture. And there are a lot of different ways to describe it, but I think it's, I think it is a, it is as coherent an agenda at the very least as the view of John Paul II that the Western, what, what he called the Western culture of death needs to be confronted sort of dramatically on issues like abortion and so on. It's at least as coherent as that, and that was pretty coherent and a pretty big part of the John Paul II pontificate. And we wouldn't look back on John Paul and say, "Well, but that was, you know, that was just he was just sort of asking us to, you know, sort of reconceive of how we think of the Church and our relationship to Vatican II and the Christian life in the late modern West." He had concrete ideas and concrete issues, and you know, concrete figures that he put into important posts, and and so does Francis. And the fact that that's real, and the, and the fact that he, to his credit, is doing this while also sort of inviting argument and debate, right? I mean, I think he, he's not, you know, he, I mean, he, he's not bringing down the Inquisition on every, every journalist who writes something critical about him, fortunately for me. Uh, the guards <laughs> aren't outside my door right now. Right. Right now. But, but to the extent that that's true, that combination of having a concrete agenda and saying as he pursues it that he's interested in having an open debate, I think means that we should have the debate. Right. We should, we should, and we should be open about the fact that it's a, it's a live debate. And if I have a sort of frustration with, you know, I, I think, 
I, I'm I'm very happy and eager to read reviews that say, you know, Gauthier gets these six points of theology wrong um, because he's not a theologian and doesn't know what he's talking about. Like those are those are helpful reviews to me as not just as a journalist but as a Catholic who's trying to sort of struggle through and get these things right. Um, but the tendency to sort of by some of Francis's advocates to sort of dismiss the idea that there's a real debate, even as in the next breath they're saying, and Francis is a huge change agent and a radical pope mm-hmm. and, and a transformative figure. Right, that, an inviting that debate. Where, right. That's where my frustration creeps in. I yeah. think there is an argument. We need to have it. And even as we're having it, we should be honest that the stakes are, you know, very real. Right. Yeah, and you've you've talked about the stakes. Um, you've used the 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 S word schism and talking about that. Um, but I, I'm I'm interested in what you think in this debate. What what are the what are the points other people people are making from the other side that you find most challenging to your position or or parts of Pope Francis's agenda that you actually would would get on board with? And you have about two minutes. <laughs> I have two minutes. So, so so the first minute. I mean, I think that the challenging point is this, the thing that should challenge all conservative Catholics, which is the question that conservative Catholicism, I think, doesn't completely have a coherent answer for, which is what can the Church change and what can't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very clear, sort of transparently clear, that Francis is changing what John Paul II and Benedict and many popes going back hundreds of years before them have said about sort of general, maybe some general moral philosophy issues, but these particular points about communion, sexual sin, remarriage, and so on. The point that liberals can totally reasonably make in return is that going back at least to usury in the 19th That's century, right. yeah, well there said. have been real shifts, mm-hmm. right? And I think this shift is is bigger in certain ways, which is why I'm sort of writing writing about it, and I think it's a shift that opens more doors than prior shifts. But I think there's no question that the sort of conservative John Paul II synthesis um, had problems even before Francis came along and started, you know, exposing even more problems and trying to make these changes. And conservatives, I, I meant what I said earlier, I think conservative Catholicism is in a confused place. And without thinking Francis is right, I don't, I don't know exactly who is right. I don't know if the traditionalists are right. I don't know if the John Paul II was right. Guys are right. I'm unsure. Uh, so I probably have 10 seconds to <laughs> add. And I think, you know, I, I, from, from the beginning, I've tried to, to say this. I, I think the, you know, the Francis, the vision that Francis offers, say, in Laudato Si, which, you know, is sort of technically somewhat to my left on economic policy, if you want to get into the, if you want to draw policy implications from it, is generally part of what Catholicism should be offering right now, which right. is basically to say Catholicism is not a chaplaincy for the late modern world. It is an alternative exactly. to the late modern world. And I think yeah. my frustration with Francis on issues surrounding sexuality is I think there you risk losing this sort of holistic vision where Catholicism has a different approach to marriage, a different approach right. to life, family, euthanasia, right. and a different approach to economics and ecology than liberal and conservative worldviews. And to the extent that Francis manifests that, as I think he did in the Alfie Evans case recently, I'm all for it, and I think that's Francis. Amen to that. And the book is To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism by New York Times columnist Ross Douthat. Thank you so much for being with us, Ross. 
Thank you so much for letting me ramble. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful to talk never, to you. Never, never, never. Your, your, your ramblings are most welcome in America, always. <laughs> um, you've been listening to America This Week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. It's you know interesting that uh, we, we kind of ended where we began, which Agreed. is this is uh, our faith is radically countercultural, and it's proposing a different kind of narrative to the world. Now, what that looks like uh, in any particular cultural or political context at any moment that's something else. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> but you can find all that we've been talking about at americamagazine.org forward slash Sirius. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and on that dreaded Twitter. <laughs> and to subscribe to America, call 1-800-627-9533. That's 800-627-9533 for a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. For Ashley McKinless and Father Patty Gilger, I'm Matt Malone. Thank you and good day. Thank you for listening to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.